Welcome to Jason and the Movie Knots. I'm Jason Sachs. I'm Blaze Mara. Welcome, Blaze. We are talking about um, trying a, 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 the first part of a new series where we talk about the films directed by Paul Schrader. And so today we're going to talk about Blue Collar and Hardcore. And hopefully this will go great. We'll do a whole series on his movies because I'm really curious to watch a bunch of Schrader movies. He's got such a diversity of uh films but uh blue collar was a great movie to start with what a what a fascinating movie that really captures the world from geez 45 years ago and what it was like to be a working man at that time you have a connection to the <laughs> board factory oh yeah um so you I'm really yeah so I should say blue collar takes place it's about really three guys who are part of a union um, and end up robbing from the union. They all work at the Checker Cab Factory, which is in Kalamazoo, but basically the movie is about the life of union workers in Detroit. So just a tiny bit of context there. And we will be spoiling both of these movies. I think we're going to talk a lot about the endings of each of them. So if you haven't seen them, you've not been warned. Especially hardcore. We have things to say about the ending of hardcore. Yeah. 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 That's the impression that I get from talking to you preliminarily. <laughs> yeah, they don't they don't say that they work at the Checker Cab Factory, which is in Kalamazoo. They just but it's obvious from looking that they're building Checker Cabs. So people who are like in the know know that that's not in Detroit. But yeah, it's about three Detroit auto workers. Doesn't matter what they're building really. They're building cars and they're in Detroit. And the exteriors of the movie were filmed in Detroit. But yeah, the I've got a blue collar speaks so much to me for multiple reasons. Um, among them is like family history, like mom's not my mom's side of the family. My mom's side of the family is just white Southerners. You know, the deal, that sort of thing. They've been in America for a long time. As far as I know, I don't I don't even know the connection back to Europe on that side of my family other than British Isles. But okay. yeah, so just white Southerners on my mom's side. My dad's side, my dad was a second generation Italian and Polish American, which, which makes me third generation, but I don't feel a strong, I don't see blue collar as like my world. It's really my grandpa's world because my grandpa mm -hmm. Um, who was Italian American first generation? He worked at the Ford factory in Dearborn, Michigan. How many years a, did he work there? I don't know, but I do know he was working. Um, he got a pension for the rest of his life for for working at Ford, and um, he was in the army. Is that where his is that where his pension came from? Shoot. I think it was from Ford. I, anyway. It probably was from Ford. My wife's grandmother worked at the Pontiac factory, I think, and she had a pension all her okay. life. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, yeah, my grandpa's pension. He had a pension his whole life from working at Ford. And he was he was at Ford um, during the time when I, be, I believe, uh, I believe he was working it may have been after the very first attempts to unionize 
maybe there were unions at the time that my grandpa joined, but there was certainly um, like flare ups and clashes at least at the time that uh, that my grandpa worked at Ford. I only have one story from back then. And it's not that my grandpa was some like leftist, uh, you know, warrior or anything. The only story I know from his time there is that uh, during a riot at the Ford factory, my grandpa stole his boss's car and took it on a joyride. <laughs> <laughs> Just imagine a riot at your workplace. Wow. That's what happened at Ford because like before unions, I mean, you know, Henry Ford, like when I was a kid, I was learning that Henry Ford was a beacon of American industry and he invented the assembly line, which allowed us to join the industrial revolution and become the superpower that we are, you know, God bless America. But like for so many people, working at the Ford factory was garbage. And, uh, and that's how even blue collar is different because blue collar takes place in the late seventies at a time when like, um, to what extent this is based on historical fact in like Detroit auto worker circles. I don't know, but certainly there are unions like, um, what's the one that everybody knows. It's like the, the teamsters yeah yeah the unions that like got in bed with organized crime well that... and that's a lot of what blue collar circles around right yeah and they work for the aaw which is like the uaw who was you know the the main auto workers union before the auto companies moved away from supporting their unions in the 80s and 90s and, and re they built and a... moved away from hiring americans and having their factories in america yeah well, the only factories in America are ones that are non-union shops. Mm. Like they build BMWs in like Alabama or something. Oh, really? Yeah. Because there's because no one has unions in Alabama. I'm in Florida. We don't have unions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um this is a really blue collar is a very interesting movie in a lot of ways. Uh I can't really think of another movie that's a lot like this movie, and that it really takes us like working class view of the world and it really is like a it's got an almost documentary feel to it because you know schrader holds his camera for so long on the scenes and mm -hmm. you really get a sense of like america in decline in the late 70s and the working class people just trying to struggle to get by in their worlds i mean obviously the cars look shitty because all old cars look shitty in old movies <laughs> god i just look at the scenes where they're driving on the highway and i'm like these these cars all look like garbage, but I mean, <laughs> even the houses—they're as Schrader says in his, in his commentary, the houses are over decorated like most people's houses are, and they, they practically look like they're falling down. Like these guys are just really getting by. The the seventies are prehistoric to me, and I think seventies cars look cool. <laughs> <laughs> I know they got horrible gas mileage though. You, you you're welcome to disagree with me dude <laughs> <laughs> yeah um there's a youtuber who does auto reviews and he's got this multi-part story on the the malaise era of american cars which is mm. he says like from about 1970 to the mid 80s when all the cars were falling apart and look like shit so anyway I, 
That makes that makes sense. I think seventies cars look better than late nineties cars, if you ask me. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's there true. you go. We can agree on that. <laughs> like like blob cars. They yeah, like blob cars. Yeah, they're all <laughs> super aerodynamic and they're so fucking <laughs> ugly. Yeah. Like old but, like like nineties movies, they haven't aged extremely well. Right. <laughs> but this movie has aged like really well. Yeah. Blue collar speaks so much to me and it's uh like everybody knows paul schrader as like the guy who wrote some of martin scorsese's best movies they know him as if they know him they know him as the guy who wrote taxi driver who wrote raging bull who wrote uh the last temptation of christ the movie version and if they're uh if they're nicholas pro nicholas cage like i am they know that he wrote bringing out the dead yeah but yeah really underrated movie (laughs) oh really i haven't seen it yeah cool i look forward to watching maximum cage sweet that's what i look for crazy cage that's exactly what i want from cage i don't like subtle cage oh no (laughs) he's not capable of cage plus plus corsese doing that surrealistic thing corsese loves to do sweet yeah (laughs) (laughs) great i look forward to that (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, like I'm like more interested in in Paul Schrader, the director, the writer director, just because I think I don't know his movies like so I, I, so many people, I think, might look at Paul Schrader's movies and they might think, well, these movies are obviously cheaper than the Scorsese movies. I don't want to watch these, but his movies are so, so interesting to me and they speak to me really speak to me and i think he knocks it out of the park with his directorial debut which is this blue collar i think he nails it first try he might not think so but i think so yeah he's not a he doesn't seem like he's a big fan of it of the movie based on this commentary so why do you think he nails it at first try what are some reasons um especially considering i i just watched hardcore and comparing it to that blue collar is uh well it helps that he got Richard Pryor, who's mm-hmm. like a huge element of blue collar. He adds a lot. Um, and Yafet Koto and Harvey Keitel are also great, um, which is a lot coming from me because I find it really hard to think about acting most of the time. But I just know that these three guys were really good. Um, but like something about the something about blue collar is complex like it's not like just a didactic lefty film about uh sticking it to the man you know making a union that's gonna like you know save the world and all that it takes place at a time not my grandpa's time where they were fighting to be unionized but at a time when the union is deeply entrenched and it's it's um the union is just part of the deal when you become a Detroit auto worker and you know resting on their laurels the union has uh pretty much become the man as they would say in the 70s and yeah. this and this union has dealings with organized crime and the union uh the union gets up to some uh some 
some shenanigans that's a light word for it the union does like foul foul things in this in this movie and it's just very like i like how complex this movie is like it's about this group of friends who whose friendship has to end so that they can all survive because they robbed their union and they don't want to get caught and it's just like it's the first half of the movie is funny because Richard Pryor primarily is riffing so much going off script mm -hmm. and um, like the movie can barely keep up with him he doesn't even he's he's riffing even when he's like out of range of the boom microphone at times and nobody would even hear it yeah but then somewhere around the halfway point of the movie it like stops being funny the clowns get shoot off and it becomes a thriller like it becomes a mean 70s thriller and and the the union is the villain and not just to be like not just not just to be the counter to the counterculture the union is the villain because it's a statement on just power and how people in power want more power and it always happens that way no matter what form it takes and it always trickles down on the individuals the poor blue collar guy just working to get by mm -hmm. so that you're just trapped in this life and this lifestyle I think it's, is it Kaitel who talks about how it's all about them trapping you in this lifestyle, in this job. They get you to have your debts. They get you to buy things. They get you to constantly be improving your life, but you never actually get any, you never actually are able to get beyond what you're stuck in. I can't and remember. I don't remember that. I remember Yafet Koto has his own monologue, which gets repeated at the very end of the movie. Yeah, he, he has his own monologue. So, like, these are smart guys in the movie. All three of them are really intelligent. Mm -hmm. But, like, um, like, the situation that they're in limits their possibilities. They can't, they don't know how to, like, conceive of a life better than the one they have. And they fight tooth and nail just to stay exactly where they are yeah just to get by really is like a, a it is kind of a, just a complete indictment of the treatment of the working man in the 70s you can see why this movie did not do well <laughs> because i mean it, it's a perfect depiction of like the the, the malaise era and the, the man of lies, right? They get in there and they steal what two hundred dollars? I think they say, yeah, two hundred dollars. They want it, to their their goal is to steal six thousand, and what they actually get is six hundred. And yet, the union says it's a thousand. If I'm, I, I should have taken notes. I'm, the I'm union, really... the the first time I watched this movie, I thought the union boss was like, like um, like a. I thought the union boss was like uh, on their side, on the side of the main characters. Oh, that, no way. No, the first He's time I watched side. it, the first time I watched it, that's what I thought. But the second time and the third time I watched it, I saw so many, I, it like, it was my fault that I thought that way on first viewing because Schrader puts so many little hints uh, in the movie, like the way, um, 
where is it in my notes oh the way that he the way that he pretends to call zeke's supervisor zeke is richard pryor or um uh, like over you his were... locker hurting his hand from having yeah. pryor's locker open which is like a totally legit thing like that you need to take care of for you and as a blue collar worker myself that really spoke to me i'll have more on that but what you were just saying he the the union boss um sees that six hundred dollars were stolen then the news media shows up and he looks to his lawyer to see his lawyer nod his head before he says yeah they stole ten thousand dollars out of our safe uh-huh. and then later in the movie he says twenty thousand dollars it's insane and then the union boss has the temerity to stand up in front of them and say, it's your money. They stole your <laughs> money. <laughs> he didn't steal our money. He stole, stole your, your money. money. Oh, my God. And like, doesn't that feel like, the, like any politician would say that, too? Right. Any, any boss I've ever worked for would say that. Yeah. No, they're stealing your hours. They're stealing your paycheck exactly oh my god sounds it was so so clever right stupid little six hundred dollar robbery becomes this twenty thousand dollar thing and they the the union hires people to like roll heads over six hundred dollars <laughs> i mean i guess it's about more than six hundred dollars it's about like dissidents you know it's so yeah, you just said clever. It's a really clever movie. And um, it's really, I like how dark it is. I like how dark a lot of 70s movies are. Mm-hmm. But it helps that I wasn't alive in the 70s. <laughs> and it's like this far off place to me. And, and so I look at these like mean 70s thrillers and I think like we really could use some of that today in our movie theaters today that's my view anyway but i love how blue collar um it was sold as a richard pryor comedy for whatever reason <laughs> right but, <laughs> like it has a weird sense of humor to it in the first half kind of um not like big laughs but just this kind of funny atmosphere to it in the first half and then by the end of the movie there are scenes in this movie that I think are like edge of your seat. Like they make you like, Ooh. yeah. Yeah. I think the movie turns when they sneak out in the middle of the night and go to the drug and sex party when they're all snorting Coke. And it's like the really nice, interesting, surreal scenes when they're all, you know, like uh, basically just, indulging themselves right we use this is like the size of three paychecks the amount of cocaine they have there mm-hmm. and they're all fucking all these these girls who you know i guess are party also factory workers probably um drinking and then the scene where they're hung over the next day and really reassessing their lives is when the, i think the yeah. movie really turns that's when they the next morning they're all sitting on the couch on this like this that's like true. long three shot yeah that and three shot is amazing. Last yeah, he shot. It it just doesn't move. Just, just Paul Schrader, he just puts the camera down for three minutes and they talk. And they're they that's when they have their like deep talk about like, man, shit sucks. And we need to like that's when they like agree to do the robbery, right? Mm-hmm. They think like, man, we need 
there's got to be more for us than this. Matt to me is when the movie turns like they're waking up from a dream in a way. Waking up yeah. from, you know, them them kind of deluding themselves about what their lives are. And then suddenly they're like, life is shit. We, we got to get a better life for our people, for our families. For and it's ourselves. hard it's hard for them to make that decision because they know like how much of their lives they owe to the union. Mm -hmm. Like the reason that they have their jobs. And I don't remember this part, but you were telling me Harvey Keitel has a part where he's talking about how the union got him a refrigerator and a car. Well, they, they gave him the money to buy the refrigerator and the car and the motorcycle. Yeah. During that same scene. Oh, really? I didn't catch that, I guess. Yeah. It, it, and this is all alien to me as someone who's never been part of a union down in the deep south where I live. <laughs> no, but think about it too, right here. So the big job in the neighborhood, in the area is to work at the factory. Yeah. Right. And so you don't even think about it. Like you're, when you're growing up and you're going through school or whatever, you're like, yeah, I got a job at the factory. So these guys get a job there and it's union protected and they have, they have kids and they have the wife and the job and all that stuff. And they're like, great. You know, my dad had the same job and he was able to retire mm. and he went, he had a boat and he went fishing on the lakes and, you know, life was good. So this is all going to be true for me too. But then they were there in that world and everything is just not what they hoped it would be. They've got asshole bosses who are sadistic They've got a union that just doesn't care about them, that manipulates them. They have uh, families that just are not satisfying to them. Well, the families actually are pretty strong in this movie, um, but they they can't stay true to them either. Yeah, like their whole like life they're... is just like everything is just like so compromised in their world. And the the saddest thing to me, and I, you, I'll let you get to your point in a minute because I know it's a mm. good point, is um, we know in in the real world the Checker Factory closed down the next year. And we also know in the real world, like by the mid eighties, all the Detroit factories were shut down. Yep. Right. Cause it, it, it was only when did Michael Moore release Roger and me is like 87 or 88 at that point, everything had collapsed. Yep. So we know like their fate is that all that even this tenuous life is just going to be destroyed. And then these poor guys are going to have no idea what to do. And they're too old to really have new jobs either. Yep. So there's this really interesting, like, overlying element of tragedy to this. That even this shitty, tenuous life they have is just going to evaporate. It's just no longer even going to be available to them. So then, what do you do? Yeah, uh, yeah. This movie takes place at a time period just like the union has gone sour, and it's just before the point where these American auto companies took their factories and moved them to China and to Mexico mm -hmm. and the Japanese started making their cars cheaper. And so Americans bought Japanese cars and it's just like, it makes you wonder how many of the people in this movie would um, in just a few years, like I was saying earlier, just find anyone else to blame the Chinese, the Japanese, the Mexicans, anyone else to blame, but ford or checker or whatever the case may be or you know pontiac or whatever for mm -hmm. like why they're out of a job now yeah yeah absolutely so there's this huge element of tragedy in this film 
Yeah. And that's a, uh, that's part of Yafet Koto's monologue, which gets repeated at the end of the movie for the, the freeze frame stinger. He gives mm -hmm. this, he basically gives like a divide and conquer speech explaining that that is the tactic of the establishment. He is so good in this movie. Yeah. And I, I was kind of depressed to hear he was an alcoholic and prior was a got started his obsession with cocaine again and Kaitel mm -hmm. was just an asshole and the three of them were constantly fighting and i think it explains a lot of why this movie's got this tension in it yeah uh, apparently the set of this movie was extremely tense and tumultuous and i can yeah you can you can feel that in a way but it's it's amazing how well these characters actually look like friends too yeah. Maybe because Pryor was riffing so much, it forced them to improvise and they all had their different approaches to things. Uh, but um, it, it, it did feel like it was a little more, it did feel like this tension added to the movie. Did you feel that way too? I love how tense the movie feels. Like it's going to explode. And mm -hmm. at any, at, at some point, the movie's going to explode and it does explode. Um, yeah, it really does. In the third act. And that goes, I think that goes to show how excellent these uh, these three guys are at acting, including Pryor. Pryor's underrated. Yeah. That guy, I swear, just, just the small facial movements, small little gestures. Maybe it comes from him being such a master of his comedy. Yeah. And a lot of what he says in the movie was just off the top. It mm -hmm. wasn't in the script. Wait, have you yeah. seen a lot of his 70s movies like Silver Streak and movies like that? Have I? No. Because he does a lot just with like facial gestures and stuff, hmm. widening his eyes a little bit and like moving his jaw just a little bit in those movies. It's like really like a master class in comedy acting. Yeah, he's he wasn't just a funny man. He was a really good actor. So yeah, the movie, the third act of the movie really is tragic. Uh so Kodo, the Kodo character gets uh, trapped in a paint paint area in this most agonizing scene. Smokey, of course, I calculate, but his name is Smokey. Uh, Smokey gets trapped in, in a uh, paint room and the guy parks a forklift in front of us so he can't get away. And he basically gets poisoned by breathing in the, the paint fumes and that scene goes on too long it which i mean by i got so uncomfortable watching it yeah it's so sinister that this like it's it's a hit that happens mm -hmm. at the auto factory which is just mind-boggling the union basically done by the union too the union gets one of their guys to block the door for him so he can't get out somebody like somebody drives the forklift in order to barricade that door and it's i don't know if that was a coworker, like it that made yeah. me think so much like who was driving that forklift is that a person who came to work every day and looked in smoke's eyes and said good morning to him every day right and then like the union you know brought him a wheelbarrow full of money and was like yeah i'll i'll assassinate him for you guys sure what would it take i don't think it would take a wheelbarrow worth of money either maybe like maybe the union knows 
exactly how much money that guy has uh you know owes on his home or whatever Right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they just buy him with a bottle of scotch. <laughs> God forbid. It's just yeah such a such a terrifying scene just to watch it play out and all and all those moments. And actually the more the paint falls on his body too, the spookier Mm -hmm. it gets to me. yeah the music adds a lot too the music by jack nietzsche Yeah, great music by Nietzsche. mm -hmm. You know what Kofo's Koto's next movie was after Blue Collar? was it alien He was alien. <laughs> oh okay cool Yeah. So I mean he has a pretty nasty death in that movie too. yeah <laughs> He's on a bad <laughs> streak for a few movies there. yeah a Whatever gets people to watch this movie, if it's because Yafet Koto's in it, or if it's because Richard Pryor's in it, or if it's, I just, I don't want people to dismiss this movie because it's like early Schrader directing for the first time. Like, I think this is like a slam dunk of a movie, a really good place to start. Oh, I agree. I agree. And it really is a 70s movie. Like we Hmm. were talking about earlier, like it fits that kind of malaise era of, of movie making, Yeah. you know, whatever it was, maybe it fits in with Taxi Driver and with Raging Bull. If Raging Bull's the end of that era and like Bonnie Clyde's in the at the beginning, then Blue Collar is like solidly one of the like the main uh, main uh, new American cinema kind of films Mm. it really is dramatically underrated. I think it's an outstanding film. Yeah. Uh, I, I do agree with, with Schrader a little bit where he says it's a little bit overwritten, a little overscripted. He said In that over the scene where Kaitel's daughter makes fake braces and makes her gums all bloody. And I thought, oh yeah, 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 that's, that's a, there's a <laughs> tiny bit much there, but I kind that's of a like little that. bit It like feels uh, like a little overpopulated, you know? that kind of feels like it comes from like a like a it's a wonderful life or something like that, like a dark version <laughs> of one of those forties movies. <laughs> yeah it's a terrible life It's probably not where it comes from, though. Something interesting about Schrader is he was, like, raised in extremely <laughs> conservative, strict Calvinist background in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he didn't, he didn't see a movie until he was 17, which is so, like, mind-blowing to me. And so, like, his taste in movies kind of starts with, like, European art house. Like, that's yeah. where he began. <laughs> Yeah, that's so interesting to me. Yeah. Because it really changes his whole, whole approach. I mean, you see that all throughout Hardcore. Hardcore is his people. Yeah, yeah. Hardcore's got that real kind of auto-bio feel to it in a way. Hardcore is uh feels like of the Schrader movies I've seen possibly the most uh the most personal because it is about like a like a teenager uh escaping the Dutch Reformed Church in Grand Rapids to California or whatever. We're in a natural transition, but was there <laughs> anything else you wanted to say about blue collar? I have so much to say about blue collar. I gotta pare myself down. Um <laughs> uh yeah, overscripted, possibly. But um, in comparison to hardcore, I like how fast people are talking in blue collar. I think 
something that blue collar nails um like s some things that i think might be misfires in blue collar if i had to point them out um i wish the wives had more to do in mm -hmm. the movie there's definitely a like if these guys are taking the union i mean they're not taking the union for granted per se because the union is is pushing them around but like if there's anything that these characters are taking for granted it's their wives who give them like saintly patience throughout yeah. the movie yeah absolutely Kaitel's wife is on the edge of being three-dimensional yeah and she never <laughs> quite becomes like more than this nice person in the background yeah mm -hmm. and the, the scene where prior prior's got the irs guy shows at prior's house that and, is uh, also his a wife recruits the neighbor kids to come over and pretend they're his kids so he can prove and he has these kids that was funny right i want to see it, more of that kind of stuff where like the wives and the husband were showing part of the larger community too schrader uh schrader regrets that irs scene yeah yeah because uh, it's just uh yeah it's pretty uh it's pretty mean comedy to have this scene where richard Pryor is trying to do a welfare scam and he tries to pass off his neighbor's kids as oj brown stevie wonder brown <laughs> i think one of them was sammy davis jr brown was probably in there somewhere yeah like that's i laugh really that's uncomfortable scene. yeah, yeah. It get, and the and the 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 tax man too is such a jewish stereotype it's so yeah this movie's like really nasty which is something i love about it but it can go it can leap over the edge at yeah. points um but something that blue collar totally nails is this kind of like these kind of workplace this workplace bickering that seems petty like prior is um like about to punch somebody over his locker how he has to like dig into the the lock of his locker with his finger and he like pricks his finger constantly because mm -hmm. his locker is crap and you think like that's a small thing but then like i've i've even been told this by by my supervisor at work like um you know we're at work more than we are with our families so let's everyone get along and i'm yeah. like like when you hear something like that it made me think like yeah that's true and it's also sad and <laughs> i right. i i never thought about it this way until i heard it somewhere but on a podcast is where i heard it but like the idea is supposed to be that you have 8 hours to sleep 8 hours at work 8 hours of free time but that's not what happens mm -hmm. because you you have to get to work and at work for those eight hours you're doing just work nothing else and then when you get home you have to dig into your free time to do everything else that you have to do like getting groceries and taking the kids to and from school taking the kids to and from activities and stuff like that so that you can like kick your feet up and relax in your free time and then if you're me you dig into your sleep even though I don't have kids, you dig into your sleep just because like everybody wants a piece of you and you need mm -hmm. some alone time. And so you dig into your sleep. So you stay up until 11 when you're supposed to be in bed at 10. Like this, this eight, eight, eight balance 
is not what happens. And you are at work more than you are with your family. And that's not how it should be. But these characters can't change that. They can't change the entire structure of how American capitalism works. So instead they, um, instead they take what they view as rightfully theirs and maybe it is rightfully theirs because the union is using that money to do dealings with like organized crime in Las Vegas. Yeah. Giving it to the workers would be a much better use of that money. And then like, uh, like, Zeke, Richard Pryor's character, he takes a promotion. He becomes the new supervisor. So he essentially becomes the man at the end. They kind of win him over like, hey, we can get you a nice position that pays more. And, you know, Zeke is Zeke wants to provide for his family at the expense of of Harvey Keitel's family. Uh, his character's named jerry bartowski which made me feel like you know because i'm italian but i'm also polish yeah. polish catholic and so that like it, it it felt very true to like detroit auto workers and oh, um yeah. and he zeke takes the promotion at the expense of his former friend jerry and if there's you know and we just we went over how Yafet Koto smoke is killed. He's assassinated at work. And if like if that if if the movie just had that as its one like scene of horrifying tension, that would be enough. But this movie has two because Harvey Ty Keitel gets into a car chase. Yes. Yeah. Which I think is I think is for me the edge of your seat part of the movie. And the music is so good. In that part too, you like you don't think that that scene is going to be so tense when it starts, but like um, Kaitel, uh, Jerry, he sees as his second to last option is fleeing across the river to Canada, and somebody paid off by the union starts chasing him, and they have a shotgun. They never even fire the shotgun, mm -hmm. but it's so like it makes you want to like explode. You're so tense at, at that point. And then I'm his- I'm glad you brought that up too, because it yeah. reminds, there's there's a subgenre the, of the, in the seventies of the paranoid thrillers. Yeah. You know, there's Clute, there's Parallax View and a number of other great films blow yeah. up the, the De Palma film that are uh, conspiracy thrillers where you just never quite know who the other side of the conspiracy is. Mm -hmm. And- He's chased in this movie, the Kaitel characters chased by these people. who He has no idea who they are, that they work for the union. They were basically faceless people. He has that great scene before he starts the car chase where he walks into the bar and you could just tell he feels like things are wrong. Yeah. There's just something that's off to him. He looks around. He looks really uncomfortable, goes back to his car and these people are chasing him. And they were like, he has no idea who these people are. He's never seen them before in his life, but he knows they're the wrong people. He knows mm -hmm. that what they do is, is terrible. So he's part of the, he's trapped in these forces that are out of his control. And everybody is chasing after him. Yeah. And it's not even that these people are like James Bond villains either. Like everybody in the movie is kind of bumbling. Like, um, yeah. Before the car chase, there are these other two guys who are sent by the union to, um, to threaten 
Jerry's wife and kids, except that they're not home and they give themselves away and, you know, smoke. This is how, you know, smoke is a really great friend. Smoke like overhears them, makes sure that Jerry's wife and kids are safe and then goes with a baseball bat over to Jerry's house to intercept these guys. Mm -hmm. And it's like everybody in the movie is kind of bumbling and it's like that just is such a a, a salient point to me because you don't have to be smart to be like a sinister puppet master and often the people in this world who are the puppet masters are actually not smart. <laughs> They're kind of man babies a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. And uh, Trader makes the point in his commentary about how stupid criminals are. And yeah. it's really true, right? I mean, would you know what to do if you're caught, caught up in a crime? Would you have any idea what the right thing is to do? You'd be this bumbling fool. I would mm -hmm. be a bumbling fool. I really wouldn't. I'm not as smart as I think I am. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, so that to me just felt so like right on that like the people are just basically faking it the entire time. Yeah. And that, and, you know, totally futile crossing of the the bridge into Canada. Yeah. The signing was confusing because he crosses over and then there's a, a, a sign that says tunnel to Canada. But anyway, I'm not sure where he was exactly at that point. But regardless. I was, I was only born in Detroit. Uh, that was the last time I've been to Detroit, so I don't know. <laughs> maybe you're, maybe there's something more complex. Anyway, uh, uh, and yeah, his just... his last uh, that escaping to Canada was his second to last idea. His last idea, as he's being cuffed by the police, his last idea is to um is to is to ask for the FBI informant mm -hmm. that's been that's been trying to butter them up for the entire movie. And that FBI informant is such a good character too, because he makes the, his presence makes the entire movie because he shows up really early, makes the whole movie have this like nasty, sour taste in your memory because he shows up and he basically gets like owned at the beginning of the movie by the three guys. They get him to like pay for their beers and then they mm -hmm. leave. And the FBI informant is just sitting there with all these beers that he bought. So they kind of school him at the beginning, but then he gets exactly what he wants at the end of the movie. He, um, Jerry's last idea is to rat out the union to the FBI in exchange for protection. That gets to your point earlier, like this movie kind of evolved from being this comedy to this drama all the stuff you think is going to turn out positive for these guys in the beginning ends up being tragic or complicated in the end. And there's that great scene toward at the very end where he's walking through the factory with the FBI agent talking about, you know, basically proving they're going to uh, inform on them and uh, just the anger everyone seems to have towards Keitel. Mm -hmm. towards blaming Jerry. him, blaming Jerry. Like, why would you, why would you write out the union when in fact he's doing the right thing and um, calling him a, calling him a Polak uh -huh. and all this and blaming him, not blaming the, their employer who is the actual, or you could blame their employer for the necessity of a union, or you could blame the union for, you know, selling out and, and becoming the new boss, same as the old boss. Mm -hmm. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. So 
yeah, I love Blue Collar. It's such a great movie. Um, now we can talk about hardcore. <laughs> that now I've now I've spent my reserves on, on, on Blue Collar. I know I you know I do have a tendency when I talk movies is to like keep the train moving and not oh, I know spend enough mean. time enjoying the the journey to the destination. <laughs> I don't think look. I don't think hardcore is as successful as a mo- movie. No, I don't either. Both movies really kind of conjure up a whole world, though, and I appreciate that a lot. You know, mm-hmm. in Blue Collar, you really feel like you're in these guys' world, and you feel like that you're part of this grungy life that they're living. That there's really just this, you're really in this working class space that no one can really get out of. Hardcore really brings up brings out the two sides of the world that that movie really focuses on you know we got this kind of almost like bucolic grand rapids michigan it really is something like out of it's a wonderful life or something you know yeah <laughs> like like a hallmark movie kind of place and then the whole underworld in the three different cities in california that's like completely dark and sleazy and nasty and um the mise en scene in this movie is just off the hook <laughs> yeah I love, I love movies that are all filmed on location and like bring yeah. the location to life because God knows if you went to San Francisco and now none of that stuff would be there. It'd all be, you know, office buildings and, and uh, corporate headquarters and we work stations and mm-hmm. extremely fancy cafes. <laughs> yeah. But 35 it's... years ago, San Francisco was completely different. It's wild how things change. Yeah. Hardcore is, um, it's, I don't know. I I would argue that it's more on the nose than Blue Collar. Schrader himself might say that both movies are very on the nose, but Hardcore, it almost like like Blue Collar starts as like a a shaky comedy that becomes a thriller, but Hardcore is like a thriller that becomes an action movie at the end kind of strangely kind of strangely george c scott despite being in his 50s has this ability to he's like schwarzenegger he he just he's like russell crowe fighting around the world he just beats up he can beat up anyone in this movie for some reason right which just feels so freaking wrong yeah (laughs) because of his rage or something um so let's go back we were talking about how this film feels like it's maybe his most autobiographical film and it has you have to see it that way yeah i think he would acknowledge that too it's it takes place in a family in the dutch reformed church in grand rapids where he grew up and it's about a teenager in this case a girl in growing up in that church who escapes to california to to you know see what else is out there Mm -hmm. and she gets i think it's pretty clear she enjoys this world she's excited to be in something that's not completely locking her in in a straitjacket of expected behavior i was wondering at the end like i'm she's definitely um feels successful in that she was able to escape but also at the end with the conversation that she has with um with her dad when he finally finds her spoilers and like uh when he's getting up to leave he goes um do you actually want me to leave and she says no not really 
And that makes me wonder, um, like she, that's her saying that she kind of wants something in her life to be stable now that she's entered this world of like underground Southern California, like sex work underworld type mm -hmm. thing. Um, that makes me think, that makes me wonder to what extent she is, she says it, but it makes me wonder to what extent she actually is happy with this new life or did she trade one unlivable extreme for another? You're getting into my big, one of my biggest frustrations about this movie, which is that we just don't know much about her. That's true. Yeah. We get the, the, the very short scene at the beginning where she, her dad basically hugs her at the party. Mm -hmm. The one scene of her hanging out with her friends at the church camp. Again, not really. I mean, there's the interesting scene where they're talking about, you know, the square on the body and stuff, but they call it chicken. Yeah. I've yeah. never heard of this game, but yeah, no, they're having like, and, they're but, having like know, girl talk, girl talk, but you're never going to really feel like how happy she is or whatever. And then you get her speech at the very end, which, you know, she's like, get away from me. I hate you. You, I was never good enough for you. She says I was she says I was never pretty or good enough for you. Yeah. First of all, it, such a cliched speech. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But secondly, like, do you believe her when she says that? And if so, why would she fucking leave with him? Yeah. D and if she doesn't believe it, why is she saying this to him? She she gives you like all of her backstory at the end of the movie. But it's not enough to get an idea of what's really going on in her life. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I do like that we realize that the uh, the prostitute, what was her Nikki. name again? Nikki, thank you, figures out Scott's wife had left him. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of dealing with the aftermath of being dumped and the divorce and everything. And so, you know, he's just such a, uh, yeah, Van Doren is such a prick. Mm -hmm. that he just doesn't care about other people when he's got a business to run he's got these very strong religious beliefs that he can't even stand watching a stupid old christmas special on tv yeah <laughs> so he's you know can you imagine living in like a more oppressive household i think like, the i think the very first lines of the movie are two people in his family um having like a theological debate yeah. Like Jesus, this is how you pass the time. <laughs> <laughs> or he also complains that um a shade of blue at his business is too bright. Yeah. Can we bring this down at all? <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. And obviously the woman who created it, his designer, was really proud of it. So he's putting her down. Yeah. Know, early early on, like he, he's wandering through the house that's full of people, full of kids and family members. But he never feels like he's like connected to them at all. It almost mm. feels like they're an inconvenience to him. Mm -hmm. He's just so fixated on who he is that he can't really see anything different. And I think this movie would have been really interesting if we'd seen him really kind of embrace this darkness within his soul. We get some idea that it's that's happening, but it feels more plot hammery than it does internal. Yeah. There are points where like he loses his cool. Um, he says the S word at one point. That's him like really losing it. Um, 
I think when he's running the porn auditions and he yeah. meets up the guy who knew his daughter, like it gets to your point earlier about, come on, this guy's young. This guy would totally beat him up in a fight. Yeah, like why but... is this guy Steven Seagal all yeah, of a sudden? He's not the Incredible Hulk. Yeah. I, I think Jake Van Dorn is something about he's he's been selected as the main character of the movie because he's not a thousand percent um in the mold of like the the buttoned up suit and tie calvinist dad not entirely because he has a dark streak to him i think he also has a curiosity about this world or at least like a at least he's he's able to be polite to like um people who are doing things in front of his eyeballs that he's probably seeing for the first time, like just walking around topless in front of him and talking yeah. to him. And he's able to be like perfectly polite to them, which is something I wouldn't really expect. Or even this could just be a, a directing mistake, but 30 minutes in is the famous scene where he sees his daughter in the porn film. And that's where you get the poster, which is just, his line, oh my God, that's my daughter. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's actually a line in the movie. But I was going to say, no, it isn't. Yeah. It's not a line in the movie, no. But I was it's paying the, attention to it on my rewatch, and no, I didn't hear it. It's the premise of the movie, though, yeah. It's what you it's what you buy the ticket to go see, and that happens 30 minutes. I was actually, un, I didn't know what this movie was about, really. I, I assumed that that was like a climactic scene at the end. But no, it's 30 minutes into the movie, and then the rest of the movie is him trying to find her, which makes a lot more sense than whatever I had in my head. Mm -hmm. But anyway, and that scene where he sees his daughter in a porn film, he um, like he has the the great George C. Scott freak out where he starts yelling, which is like snarling, like turn it off. Uh -huh. like that sort of thing that I love from it's George C. Scott too like he's being battered and bruised yeah. by everything he's seeing but then he just kind of like i was expecting him to be in his seat with his head in his hands but he actually just gets up and walks back out the front door of the porn theater to talk to peter boyle's character mm -hmm. he also i think i could be um I could be getting too Freudian, but I also think he was looking at the film a little bit too long. I might be crazy. Well, I think he's fascinated by this world. And I think, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I see what you're getting at. There's mm -hmm. also um, when, the when his daughter, Kristen, is introduced. Um, again, this could be like just a mistake, but like there's a little bit of Jack Nietzsche's music that starts playing and it's kind of tender sounding music. And then Jake walks up to her and like helps her put her coat on. And I don't know, I got something. And then at the end of the movie, when she says, I was never pretty enough for you like that, it, it gave me a, a weird, like um, Freudian kind of feeling about the movie. I don't know. This could be going nowhere. I think that's a valid read. I think it's a valid read. Certainly. Because um, he's, he's, he's so repressed that he's exactly yeah. the kind of person you can imagine. 
stepping over that line. You would say like, like maybe in a news write up to to make a to make a a hook for a news story. You might say like this is the last kind of person you would expect, but it's actually it's actually the first kind of person I would expect. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. more like suppressed someone is sexually, the more um, and also uh when jake is like in a has this really funny disguise on and he's pretending to be a porn producer in order to get a bunch of male talent to talk to him so that he can find one of the guys who was in the film with his daughter um he finds the guy and starts talking to him about Kristen. Or uh, as she's calling herself in the porn world, Joanne, mm -hmm. and and the 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 male talent starts talking about how freaky she is. He's actually like scared of her. Like I never want to work with her again. I don't know what was going on in her head. I don't know what she was on. That girl is freaky. Yeah, and, yeah, and he's he intrigued. No, he's. He's gets he responds in anger. Yeah, but it's, like there's an anger nobody talks it's about hitting my daughter too close. Like no one talks, but it's it's hitting too close to home. Yeah, because it, 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 it's if nothing else, it shows why she felt like she needed to get out. It sets up her character to be to reject her dad at the end. Yeah. Uh, there's you know, also um, Kristen there's also... wants more than she can get in her stupid little boring life in Grand Rapids. Yeah, exactly like Paul Schrader wanted more. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to say something. Um I was going to say uh Oh, there's also the scene where um Peter Boyle who plays the the private investigator is trying to get a sense of who Kristen is and he says um trying to narrow down what kind of a person Kristen could be. He starts saying like so your daughter's not a loose person. She's not a she's not fucking around, let's say. And then Jake says, like, I would watch your mouth if I were you. Uh -huh. And there's so much to that line. It it could be like, um, stop swearing because that's wrong. It could be there are other parts of that conversation which make me think he's saying, like, don't talk about my daughter like that. Um, just don't even utter the 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 possibility that my daughter could be like that, or it could be um, that would be unconscionable if my daughter is like that. There's kind of two subtle possibilities. Besides, like, stop using curse words. Disregarding yeah. that possibility, there are two very subtle differences to those latter two. Where you're treading close to this danger line, where it starts to get hit close to me. Yeah, close to my relationship. Yeah, I like that. I didn't pick up on that very much, but I like how you're pulling that string. Yeah, I just felt like Jake Van Dorn was. Um, he wasn't. Uh, he was able to like slither his way into this porn underworld much more quickly, even though it takes him five months, it takes him much more quickly than I would expect.
from someone of his background. Yeah, I'm, I don't know if I should attribute that to Schrader's script writing or the character. Yeah. Because that's something I wrestled with too. Like the, the, everything in this movie just feels a little undercooked. Like the Boyle character, Andy, uh, Andy Mast, I should say, because we'll probably call him Mast like the Scott character does. Like yeah. he's on the verge again of being this complicated character. And in fact, Nikki also feels on the verge of being a complicated character. There's hints, there's other stuff going on in their lives, but we never quite get under their skin. If we're if we're taking um if we're like starting the Paul Schrader journey here with his first two directorial films, like between these two films, Nikki is the strongest female character in the Paul Schrader verse so far. And like you know, people who know Paul Schrader, there's the, everybody calls his protagonists uh, the lonely men that mm -hmm. he's constantly writing about, mm -hmm. which makes me really interested because um, I, I can think of one movie that he did with a female main character and it's Patty Hearst and I haven't seen it. And so I'm really curious to see how he handles a female main character. But yeah, Nikki is the closest thing to like a rounded female character in these two movies. But she's still defined basically by her sexuality. Mm -hmm. We don't get much of an idea who she is outside of that. Uh, she's a Venusian, <laughs> you know, the Venusian church. Oh, <laughs> Venus, uh, goddess of love. Venus, goddess of love. Yeah. <laughs> It wouldn't have been that hard to give us more about her, too. Yeah, I really liked her, and I wish there was more about her. Susan Hubley, who was in a bunch of uh, John Carpenter films, uh, uh, it's like interesting on the screen. She's really kind of, I really enjoyed seeing her, but they, she never was given quite enough to like really fill her out. Like, I really feel like she could. In a better version of this movie, I think she's his, his ally and his guide into this world. So of him finding his way, she's the seasoned pro who understands how to do it. It's like a cop movie in a way. Yeah. The senior cop is able to show you where all the gangsters live or whatever. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, they do. They do become like they be, they get a sort of buddy dynamic in the movie. Yeah. But also but, Nikki, Nikki sees him as her way out of sex work. Mm -hmm. through his money because he's he says he's middle class but he's he's upper class he's upper class he's the man he's literally the factory owner like in blue collar yeah he's it's funny because when i was growing up my mom always told me that we were middle class we're not middle class <laughs> and he's not he's not middle class he's on the other side yeah of middle class he's able to hire uh andy mast for like 700 dollars a week for four months He's right. upper class. Right. Or well, he pays Nikki even more than that. Yeah. He's got the money to spend. And then he's able to buy that amazing wardrobe. Yeah. <laughs> Amazingly 70s. And then fly to San Francisco and, and San Diego and LA and yeah. get hotel room, more hotel rooms than he's ever stayed in his life. Mm -hmm. Unless he's maxing at his Bank America card. Uh, he's, I've never uh, heard of that. <laughs> eventually became visa oh i have visa oh <laughs> yeah that's um 
Nikki sees Jake as her way out of sex work through his money. You know, it, there's also um, like Blue Collar got into the working class. There is a little bit in hardcore. Um, there's a scene where another like nameless sex worker is talking to Jake and she starts giving him because she can tell he's never done this before. He he, uh, she also feels that she can trust him with this knowledge. She gives him an explanation of how the money works in these um, like la lady wrestling parlors oh, yeah. or whatever yeah. they're called in in LA at the time. However, they like get out of the legal. You know, they're able to do it legally. Like it's technically not prostitution, but anyway, she's talking to him and she gives him this rundown of like, okay, so the $20 that you paid to get in, none of that goes to me. It goes to the owner. I get $2 an hour and I live on tips. So if I'm going to tell you anything, I would really like to see a tip. And then, uh, and like Jake seemingly hears this. And is like, okay, so that's how it works. And this girl deserves money for what she does. Mm -hmm. So he mm -hmm. quickly hands her $40, just like that, which is another one of the major things that makes me think that Jake is like, um, he's the main character because he's not the straightest laced Calvinist. Yeah. Um, but then also... Uh, he's, he's playing a part when he's around friends and family. A little when bit. people don't know him he's able to be more himself where he's got this this expectation as the fact the wealthy factory owner in this little small town and someone who's important in his church as being this one person but then he throws he kind of just drops it in order to pursue his daughter also why would you be so obsessive about tracking down your daughter there's just an element to that too that just seems a little over the top to me I didn't think it was over the top. Um, I don't have kids. So I just believe like when, when people tell me like everything in your brain changes when you have kids, I just accept that to mean like, okay, so you will like move heaven and earth if your kid went missing. Got it. I just accept that. I, I just felt like he, he threw away his life for months to go do this. He, committed violent <laughs> acts he spent thousands of dollars at a point when thousands of dollars was a lot of fucking money yeah um i don't know i think it makes more sense if you're like i don't know the dad in finding nemo <laughs> <laughs> no actually i get what you're saying now if he was the straightest laced calvinist he might um he might like disown he might just write her off exactly as like she's, right? she's gone to she's gone to live in california with all the other heathens and i don't have a daughter anymore if he can't even stand to watch a rated g holiday show where little kids are all singing in a chorus wearing christmas hats then yeah. how could he how could he even like imagine spending time in this world I mean, this is like for 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 someone as strict as that it'd be like having your hand not just touch a stove, but sitting on a, a burner on your stove for hours every day. Yeah. Like it would, would... literally like burn you, right? And he, yeah. by the end, he's walking into that, uh, the S&M parlor. Yeah. And just bullying his way in. Like it, it's just a normal thing that you're going to see anywhere. 
he kind There's of no shock on his face either as when he goes right. into those places. He he picks up on the the like sex work lingo very quickly. Yeah. 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 Which I think goes to your well, I think I think either way. Is Schrader just taking a shallow view of what he wants to present, or is this showing a deeper sense of who the father is? Mm. Yeah. Maybe this this could just be my ignorant view as someone who like I grew up in like a culturally Christian household. That's how I put it. Like almost non-practicing yeah. is what I grew up in. And um and religion is like long behind me. So this could just be my ignorance, but like I would expect this like Dutch reformed patriarch to walk into like a sex parlor in LA and like explode, like set yeah. on fire. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking. And that's, that's actually a movie I was expecting. Yeah. I was expecting a lot more of him just like pushing against it. It's like acid touching your skin or something. I like the, the spit of the devil. I like that. It wasn't that though. I like that yeah. his character is more complicated like uh, even though I don't think this movie is as good as Blue Collar, I do think this is still a really good movie with some major missteps. Biggest among them being the ending, but we'll get to that. What else do you want to talk about before we get to the ending? Um, uh, we could talk about the ending. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, let me look at my notes. Oh, I really liked the artsy fartsy UCLA graduate porn director. Oh yeah, that was funny. <laughs> You're thinking about your dad. <laughs> this is that's Steven Spielberg. If it, if he hadn't gotten Jaws, he would. Oh be... my god, yeah. Oh, I noticed. Um, there's almost a. I I'm willing to bet that these are two. I could be insane, but I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that these two things were like intentional pieces of direction. So um, another hint for what we've been talking about that he might not be the straightest laced Calvinist is um, his friend Wes, who flies to LA with him for the first time and talks to Andy Mast. Mm -hmm. they're, at the, they're at the diner. Uh, his friend Wes takes his coffee black. He specifically asks like black, please. And then... Um, and Jake puts sugar in his coffee. That might have been a little something, a little hint, or maybe hint I'm there. maybe I'm crazy. There is also um, Kristen, like Andy tells Jake to fly back to Grand Rapids because he'll be more useful in Grand Rapids. He can look in Kristen's room for hints of what she may have done, where she may have gone, why she may have done it. So then you see Kristen's room. She has a Star Wars calendar. And then later when he's back in L.A., there's this tracking shot out of a hotel window and you see a billboard for Star Wars. I'm glad you mentioned there's three references to Star Wars because there's also when he goes into that nudie bar, there's the two women on stage who are naked with capes on playing yeah. with their lightsabers. And that like we were talking about this before we hit record. It's hard for me to conceive of like what a phenomenon star wars was because this was 79 probably shot in 78 this is before the second movie came out 
So like mm -hmm. this, it's hard for me to conceive like, yeah, I get that like today the, the theaters at the mall are full whenever the new Marvel movie shows up, but that's like a huge, you know, people go to it because it's the new Marvel movie, but like Star Wars came out and it was just instantly accepted as like the greatest movie that was happening at the time. And it was like an instant phenomenon to the point where in this movie, those two like um, strippers are dressed up as Luke and Darth Vader. <laughs> <laughs> I think the only move, the only movies that even slightly compared to that are the Lord of the Rings movies. Sure. Yeah. Cause but I was then... thinking about the anticipation for empire but then and those like the have like closest like Return of the King, but those are based on world famous novels too. Yeah, yeah, we had no idea. You 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 can't even imagine like we had no idea that that uh, Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father. No, you didn't even know that at the time. Jeez, wow, this is. Uh, I remember that being like the uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> Wes is not just uh, Wes is not just uh, Jake's friend. He's Jake's former brother-in-law. Oh, okay. Which is interesting too. So the wife left him. He refers to him to, as my in-law at some point. Oh, okay. The I wife didn't catch left that. him, but he stayed his friend or he stayed his buddy and he's still calling him his brother-in-law. Interesting little touch there. Yeah. I was confused at a point because there was a character who I thought was like, um, is this Jake's second wife and is this his stepson? But it's it's Wes's family. Yeah. I just I thought for a second and I was like, Calvinists probably don't get remarried, if I had to guess. <laughs> yeah, unless there's a death or something. So okay, so they you're pulling another interesting string, right? So they're the, not divorced, are they? Technically. She she only left him. Yeah, they're not divorced, yeah. I don't think. Right, but she did leave him. Imagine, like in this extremely religious community, what it means for your wife to leave you. What a oh, shattering yeah. experience that would be. Maybe that that does kind of imply something that he either did or wanted to do to Kristen. Because what would it take for your wife to leave you? Oh my God! Like it's it's the ultimate sin against the church. I just they all they ever say is like um. Like Jake pretends that she's dead and then reveals that she actually left. And how I interpreted that is um, like, like his wife is um, the predecessor to Kristen or basically proof to Kristen that she can't actually escape. Yes. And I have to imagine his wife probably just got tired of being in the Dutch Reformed Church. That, that was my interpretation. And then where did she go? She may as well be on Mars, as far as Jake knows. Could she be in California? Could I she don't know. Gone to, to Jake's version of hell. I mean, <laughs> this movie is so problematic because Jake's our POV character. <laughs> right? He's just a fucking mess. The more you think about, the more mess he really is. He is a mess, yeah. <laughs> and I guess that does kind of perfectly lead to, to discussing the, the conclusion because yeah, speaking of I, messes i don't think there's any way Kristen would go back with him i never i never i i just don't buy that whole i buy her rejecting him i don't buy her even accepting him putting her in the police car okay wait i'm unclear so they get okay. in the, they get in the same police car together 
so he he puts her in the in the back of a police car and then he appears to think about it for a minute and then he gets in after her in the same police car i think it's the same police car are you remembering it differently i want to say that he puts her in a police car and then gets in a different police car and i wonder if that's because they're Oh, I don't know. Would would they be going to two different places? But okay, like, I I need to rewatch that then. Okay. I just watched it earlier today, and I'm still unclear. Rewatched. I know. I was it, just I, I was say. just watching it just an hour or two ago. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't specifically pay attention to that. Okay, so first of all, do you buy her accepting him, or do you think uh, it makes more sense for her to for her to reject him? Um, I totally believe that she was like ready to be done with her family forever. And what I expected to have happen, I didn't expect Jake to accept what, what she was saying. And I was fully expecting Jake to like physically grab Kristen kicking and screaming and going like, we're going back to Grand Rapids. And Mm -hmm. then what I was expecting is that they would walk out the door still and Jake would not care what anyone else thinks that he's like making a scene like this. He would be physically grabbing his daughter and dragging her presumably to the airport. And I was expecting police to break them up and put them in two separate cars. That's what I was predicting, but that's not what happened. That's a more satisfying ending. Yeah, I think so. I was going to go the opposite way where he, he accepts it because he's been through this change in his life. The stories about him, his evolution. Then at the end, he basically has this epiphany that says, yeah, I have to allow her to live her life. And uh, he just goes back, whether it's out of disgust or out of just appreciation that she's got a different experience that he would just let her go. Yeah. What happens at the end is Jake uh listens to her and then starts psychoanalyzing himself like I was I just, I do love you I just never knew how to show it I was never taught and he starts crying yeah and yeah. that's just that's like that's not Jake that's Paul Schrader saying that <laughs> like it's... writing fan fiction about his family Oh my god, what a great way to put it. It's like fan fiction about his family. <laughs> this is the un- the unrealized feelings about his dad or something. Wow. And then everybody in the then everybody in the in the the stripper bar started clapping or, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> uh wow. I can see that. Interesting. Yeah, so like what happens is he listens to her and then starts psychoanalyzing himself, and then he accepts her decision. I just don't believe that. No, I don't believe that either. I don't think we have enough that shows him growing to that realization about himself. No, it's like the the only growing that he really does is he learns how to convince people that he's a porn producer so that he can eventually get to Christian, Kristen and also exact revenge on the the person who he sees as the greatest threat to Kristen, which is this guy Rattan, 
who makes snuff porn. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. But just getting rid of Rattan, I mean, yeah, now what? There's a million other assholes out there in the porn industry. He can't yeah. protect his daughter against everything. I was also, um, this is kind of. I, I keep coming back to complaining about the script, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I'm not aware of a commentary for hardcore. If there is one, I haven't heard it. I would be curious about that. There is a, I found on YouTube, a BBC interview from the early nineties where he, they, he talks about hardcore. A oh, bit. okay. And uh, he, it sounds like he was a bit dissatisfied with it too. Hmm. Mentions that his mom has a cameo in the, in the Thanksgiving scene at the beginning. By oh, the that's way. funny. And his wife that's his, actually. His wife at the time also has a small cameo in one scene. I, I noticed in the blue collar commentary, he just pointed out his ex-wife who shows up for two seconds in that. Oh movie. yeah. I'm sorry. His wife is in blue collar. His mom. Oh, is okay. In, his mom is in hardcore. That his, that his mom is in hardcore is really surprising. I wonder how much of the premise he told her about. <laughs> I don't know. So here's the, uh, here's the story that he told in that interview. He said his dad uh, I think he's. He said, "Is the only movie uh, that his dad saw of his is Hardcore, and he refuses to dis- he refused to discuss the movie with him." That makes a lot of sense to me. But that his dad was also part of the groups that protested the Last Temptation of Christ. But the dad justified as, "I'm only part of the local Michigan group. I'm not part of the national group that's protesting it." And as far as he knows, he he never saw any of his other movies. The dad never saw any of his other movies. And um, that's really basically the only conversation they had about his films. Hmm. Yeah, geez, that's it's all complete rejection. That's not the that is so far from the environment where I grew up in. That's really sad. Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. It says something about why his main characters are outsiders, though. Yeah. It definitely explains it. Yeah. Yeah, hardcore is, hardcore is really good. I It's a cut above. But, like, yeah. It's just got these... Uh, it falls onto these cliches at times. Um, actually, I think... I think it, I think I saw on the Wikipedia page uh John Milius the executive producer also thought yeah. that hardcore was a mistake. Yeah, and, interesting Milius was the guy involved in this with all his macho characters. Yeah, right? And and Schrader's like former mentor Pauline Kale hated hardcore. It's not nearly as successful as Blue Collar. No. Uh, she what she points out, she makes a lot of unusually for Pauline Kale. I actually understand what the hell she's talking about with <laughs> hardcore. And she says, uh, she basically just points out things that we are talking about, which is that he turns into Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movie. And that's just like preposterous. I am, I guess, more of a simpleton where I see George C. Scott fighting around the world. And I'm like, hell yeah. I'm just laughing, but it's not like a recipe for a, it's not a recipe for a movie that's going to join the ranks of my all-time faves, like Blue Collar is. Yeah, I agree with you completely. <laughs> Blue Collar really is stuck, it sticks with me. Yeah. 
yeah, I first watched it back last August or September, and I've been thinking about it since then. And yeah, I'm not going to give hardcore a lot more thought. <laughs> yeah. The only thoughts I'm going to give her, I wish I, I I wish there was just a little more service for the women in that movie. I mm-hmm. wish we knew more about Nikki and I wish we knew more about Kristen. Because he had the opportunity to really do something that was kind of that popped in a different way and it never did and it just, the movie just never did. Schrader's movies are very 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 male. It's true. Which makes me so curious to to watch patty hurst but like until then and after then yeah that's i i can think of very few female paul schrader characters that are uh really three-dimensional in the way that a lot of his male characters are well our next two movies would be american gigolo and cat people okay oh yeah cat people that's another and Natasha Kinski's character in that movie is uh, very much herself. Oh, okay. Have you seen that movie? No, okay. I've seen I've seen the original Cat People, and I've seen Natasha Kinski in Paris, Texas. That's all I know. Oh, she's so good in that. Yeah. Oh, what a great movie. That's a whole different topic. <laughs> uh, any last words on either of these two movies? Um can't recommend blue collar enough it's uh it's third generation polish american approved (laughs) such a great movie um hardcore is also really good if you want the that like nasty 70s vibe but in blue collar it feels more potent because um because the movie is so textured before then it's this like kind of shaky comedy in the first half which makes the impact of Yafet Koto's death and um, Harvey Keitel's chase scene feel like the most sinister crimes that have ever taken place on this earth even though it's even though it probably happens all over this country in every day in different forms and um Hardcore is good for that nasty 70s vibe. The first half of the movie takes, or the first 30 minutes of the movie takes place in this like idyllic to a conservative Grand Rapids with um, the most, more snow than I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> that was insane. The snow, the snow banks are like as tall as the people. I've never I seen saw that, that in my yeah. life. That's incredible. But yeah, it starts in this like, Hardcore just feels like it's working on a more, I don't know, I guess like it would be fitting if I were to say a more grindhouse level, but a more like genre, a more lowbrow level Mm -hmm. than blue collar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You could see it as a little bit of a transitional film. Grindhouse is a good word, actually. Maybe it's not a transitional film into the eighties. It's more, it just has a grittier. No, it doesn't have a grittier feel. I'm not sure how to put it. I guess I'd say it's, um, it's disappointing. is the best word I can use for it. It just, it kind of, it devolves at the end when he starts, uh, 
when George C. Scott, like as fun as it is, George C. Scott starts like punching people through these like plywood walls. Yeah, we didn't mention this, but like the the little tiny moment I liked the best in this movie is at the end when Peter Boyle's pulling out his gun to shoot the the guy who's running away. And first he has trouble getting the gun out of his holster. Then he has trouble aiming it, right? He has to like cock the, the, the trigger or whatever it is. Yeah. And then shoots. And like there's those little kind of moments of struggle, like we're so much more interesting than most of the other movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that shot was really funny. And I choose to believe that that was a genuine mistake that Schrader probably just left in the movie because he thought it was like textured and interesting. And I would totally I just totally believe that like if Raymond Barone's dad was a private investigator, that's what he would do before shooting someone. He would like drop his gun. <laughs> nice <laughs> all right yeah. well, this is great i'm glad we got to do these yeah uh i'm I'm gonna put um i'm I, i'm totally uh i mean paul schrader is a guy who whose filmography i want to complete anyway just just even you know either way it's something i was gonna do all right so, well then in the in the running list, blue collar is above hardcore, and I'm gonna I'm just gonna watch everything else, and we'll see what goes above blue collar. Well, let's do American Gigolo and Cat People next time. Sure, I'm down for that. I've never seen either of those. Richard Gear. That's all. Oh, that's peak Richard Gear and American Gigolo too. Sweet. All right. <laughs>